Well, this morning I want us to consider what it means to be operating according to the will of God. Now, it is not my intention to focus our time on the mystery of God's will, uh, His decretive versus His permissive will, uh, how to discern God's will for my life. That would lead us down a very different path of discussion altogether. Rather, I want us to consider briefly the notion uh, of obeying and abiding in the will of God that has already been revealed to us. Frankly, this is an issue of obedience and submission. Well, how so? Well, there are truths that are revealed to us in the Word of God that are binding on every single believer, and more than this, they're binding on every single person, even if they don't acknowledge Christ as their Lord and Savior. For example, Acts 17.30 teaches that God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. God's desire, His will, is for all to repent and trust in Christ. Furthermore, 1 Timothy 2.4 says that God our Savior desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now this is not to say this is teaching universalism, that all people will be saved. Again, God's decretive will. Rather, this is God revealing his desire for sinful humanity to repent and trust in Christ, although not all people will do so. In fact, 1 Thessalonians 1.8 tells us that Jesus Christ is, often, is even prepared to enact vengeance on those who rebel against the will of God, and he says those who do not obey the gospel. And so to refuse to obey the gospel and believe the gospel is disobeying the revealed will of God. That's one aspect of his will. There's another will of God for our sanctification. This includes the submission to the commandments of God where he says do not lie, do not steal, do not commit adultery, and so on. In addition to the commands for uh, obedience, there's also the commands for us to bear the fruit of righteousness. We see that listed out even in Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit. So therefore, to disobey God's commands against immorality and drunkenness and gossip and complaining and stealing is operating against the revealed will of God. And so we are called and commanded to learn from the Lord and to respond in humble submission to Him. All that God has told us that He wants us to do and to believe. I think so many times we get so focused on, I want to know God's will for my life, about the job, about the person I'm going to marry, about where I'm going to go in the future, and yet we do so at the expense of focusing on what He has already told us He wants us to do, and allowing the rest of these things to come in due time. And as we're going to see this morning, the Lord reserves this the harshest rebuke for one of his closest disciples who attempts to undermine the revealed will of God. And so if you're holding your copy of Scripture, turn to Matthew chapter 16. We're going to continue this morning in our exposition of Matthew. Matthew 16. Now the events of Matthew 16 verses 21 to 23 build off of the narrative we've already been looking at in the previous section of verses 13 to 20. We spent quite a few weeks on this passage that was so rich with theology and ecclesiology for us, what it means to have a saving confession of faith and what it means for Christ to build His church and what it means for Him to give the authority, the keys of the kingdom of heaven to that church. And the Apostle Peter, on behalf of all the disciples, 
has professed this saving faith in Jesus Christ. He says in his confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And this marks really sort of a high watermark for Peter in the life of his, his own personal walk with Christ. The Lord blesses him for this confession, a confession that reveals to him that not that flesh and blood has done all this in him, it's not that Peter is so great or anyone else has told him these things, but rather that the Father in heaven has revealed all these things to him. And he says, you're blessed, you're, you're favored, you are graced by God because God has chosen to reveal these truths to you. So blessed are you, Peter, happy are you because God's working in you. This is good news, this is a, an opportunity to rejoice And it's on the heels of Peter's confession that Jesus answers, or announces, I should say, the forthcoming arrival of the church, the assembly of redeemed saints, the the gathering that Jesus has promised to build, sustain, and endure, and give the authority of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Everything at this point seems to be looking up. And if you couple that with the fact that in chapter 17, we're going to get to the top of the mountain and see Jesus transfigured before us, All of this points to, this is a really good time to be a disciple. Jesus has been identified as the long-awaited Messiah, the Savior, the one who has come into the world to redeem us and bring us to God. The church is set to be established, indestructible against the forces of hell, the authority to wield the uh, the keys of the kingdom of heaven that's been delegated. The disciples are no doubt encouraged and prepared to experience victory and blessing in Christ. But then suddenly, the tone shifts as Jesus has something else that he wants to say. Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests but on man's. Verse 21 marks a transition here. Matthew notes that from that time, meaning that things are going to change from this time moving forward. Again, verse 21, look at again at this verse with me. He says, from that time, Jesus began to show, this is the continuous action, began to show the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes, be killed and be raised up on the third day. So, Everything is changing after this confession that Peter makes. The disciples, again, they now know who the Messiah is. Now, they have known for a little bit of time here. Remember back to the very beginning, even two years prior, and John records this, that they say, we have found the Messiah. So they've known this. It's kind of been creeping into their understanding. But now it has been definitively identified and declared, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ the Son of the living God. And so from this point forward, Jesus is not going to use any more veiled language, no more mystery, no more symbols and metaphors, at least to the disciples. 
He's going to speak plainly. In fact, Mark 8.32 notes that from that point on, Jesus was speaking plainly to them. To the crowds, he was still using parables and all kinds of imagery, but the disciples, he's going to talk straight to them now. Brothers, I'm going to go and die and rise, and I need to tell you the truth about what's going on here. And this is going to be very, very detailed. It's going to be very specific. And he begins to reiterate to them over and over again, listen, I have to go, I have to suffer, I have to be killed, and I have to rise. But I want you to notice something. It's very interesting. Matthew does not say that Jesus was merely telling them all of this. He says in the text that he began to show them. Tell versus show. Mark 8.31 records that he does this through teaching. Through teaching. What exactly is he showing them? Well, certainly he's teaching the disciples from the Scriptures what the Bible says specifically regarding his upcoming death and resurrection. And he notes really here four distinct things that must happen. These all are things that must happen. And if you were to look at this and study this out, this word must, it should be carried over and applied to every distinct uh, uh, consideration afterwards. So when he says here in verse 21 that he, the Christ, must go to Jerusalem, the implication is that he also must suffer, must die, and must rise. Okay, so we're going to build on that understanding. The first thing he says is that Jesus must go to Jerusalem. He must go to Jerusalem. Up to this point, he's been ministering primarily in the northern region of Israel, sort of away from the crowds, away from the bigger cities. He's in the region of Galilee, his home region. And even at this point, in the context of the passage, they're ministering in Caesarea Philippi, which is a Gentile territory. They're not even in Israel anymore. They're somewhere else. But Jesus tells them, okay, at this point moving forward, now they've been to Jerusalem a couple of times. You go there every single year for pilgrimage. But at this point, he says, we have to go back to Jerusalem. Now, they've spent all this time trying to stay away from Jerusalem, away from the crowds, away from the Pharisees, and away from trouble. But now we're going to go into the lion's den. He must go to Jerusalem. Now, there's many reasons for why he must go to Jerusalem, but I think the most important fact to consider is this, that all sacrifice, all sacrifice is to be made at the temple. It's the place where people essentially meet with God at the judgment seat. That's the place where we're going to go, confess our sins, offer up sacrifice, and God will forgive. So Jesus, he is both the great high priest who's going to bring the sacrifice, but also he is himself the sacrifice. And so he is going both as sacrifice and priest. And he has to go. It is only appropriate that he traveled down to Jerusalem to give his life there for us. Secondly, he tells the disciples that he must suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. Now, there are many passages in the Old Testament that predict the suffering of the Messiah, but Jesus is even more specific here. He tells them that there's going to come a point when he's going to be delivered over to the hands of the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. These three main groups make up the Jewish Sanhedrin, the religious leadership of Israel. These are the who's who of spiritual leadership. In fact, Ezekiel 34 addresses the false shepherds of Israel, which are the members of the Sanhedrin, according to Jesus. He tells them so in Matthew 23. 
These are not the upright and righteous and godly leaders that they were hoping for. No, these are the false shepherds. Ezekiel then adds that there's going to be a time when they will be supplanted and removed and replaced by the true shepherd. That's Christ. And if that's the case, if being false shepherds weren't enough, Jesus says it's actually going to be them who will persecute him. I'm not just going to go and replace the false shepherds. It's the false shepherds who are going to persecute me as I do so. At a different time in the Gospels, Jesus tells a parable. He's sort of building on the imagery of Isaiah where the Lord talks about going and planting a garden and that's supposed to be Israel. But Jesus elaborates and he says, I'm going to plant a garden and send all my servants. They're going to beat these, the, the vine dressers are going to beat the servants, and then he's finally going to send his son. They're going to kill the son. And as soon as he announces that this is going to happen, the Pharisees who are listening to the parable know that it's about them, and they get angry. So this is a repeated theme over and over and over again. It is the Pharisees and scribes and the chief priests who are going to persecute Christ, and so he will suffer many things by their hands, which culminates in, thirdly, Christ being killed. Any Jew who knew his scriptures should have known this, that the Messiah was going to have to die. It is clear. Psalm 22 records the agony of the sufferer, declaring, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are the very famous words of Jesus that he says on the cross, but this has already been said and declared by David. These are the details of the suffering. I'm just going to read this to you very briefly here. In Psalm 22, the psalmist writes, I am being poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots. David writes about this a thousand years before Christ lives this out on the cross. Perhaps maybe they missed that, though. Maybe they didn't pay attention to Psalm 22, to know enough that that was what it's describing. Okay, we can give that to them. But what about Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter 9 that says the Messiah will be cut off? What does that mean? It means he's going to be killed. Daniel flat out says the Messiah is going to be killed, be cut off and brought to nothing. What else could it mean? Or even the servant songs of Isaiah. Isaiah 53 that describes the Messiah being stricken of God and afflicted, pierced and crushed, cut off from the land of the living. No, Messiah had to be killed. And even if they didn't put two and two together, with all of that, the Lord had told them exactly what was going to happen and he was using these scriptures and more to explain that to them. But that's not all. He also tells them, not only am I going to be killed, which would have broken their hearts and shocked them. But then he says this, fourthly, that he, he must essentially be raised up on the third day. That's, a, that's another component to this whole story. In fact, Peter later cites Psalm 16.10 as proof that the Messiah would resurrect from the dead, declaring that God would not abandon his soul to Sheol, to Hades, if you will, neither would he allow his Holy One to undergo decay. 
In other words, his body's not going to go on the ground and rot there. He won't allow that for his holy one. Isaiah 25, 8 even says that he will swallow up death for all time and will wipe away the tears from all faces. So Peter later knew that those scriptures were talking about the resurrection of Christ. But Jesus told them this. But more than that, he showed them. He no doubt went through all the scriptures that applied to this and showed them from the Bible, this has to happen. Otherwise, I'm not the Messiah. And so over and over and over again, he was showing them and showing them. He does it later on in Matthew 17, 22, Matthew 20, verses 18, over and over again, showing them and showing them the Messiah must go, suffer, die, and rise. Has to happen this way, brothers. Well, why? Why must this happen this way? Because it's the only way that he can accomplish salvation for his people. It's the only way. Because the breaking of God's commandments, which is sin, by the way, whenever you rebel against what God has said, you shall not do this and this and this and this. You shall do this and this and this. Whenever you violate what God tells us to do, the revealed teaching of Scripture, that is sin. That is sin. And sin cannot be paid for apart from a perfect sacrifice. In the Old Testament, they used to offer up animals. They would take a spotless lamb or a goat or a bull and they would offer that up and try to appease the Lord. The Lord prescribed that means of sacrifice. Even though the Bible later on tells us that even though that pointed to the sacrifice that was going to be made for sin, the sacrifices in and of themselves did not do anything. It is only the true and perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ that takes away the punishment and the guilt and the shame and the condemnation of sin. It's only through Christ's perfect sacrifice. Why only Christ? Because He's the only perfect one. He doesn't just look spotless. He is spotless. And He can give His life as a ransom for sinners like us. And so Jesus offers himself as the only true sacrifice of sins, which means he must die. He must go. And John the Baptist told them this. Remember back at the very beginning? All the crowds are around and he looks across and he sees Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away sins. You think that they would have put the two and two together. What does he mean by that? the Lamb of God who takes away sins. He's going to die. He has to die. Again, satisfying the demands of God's law, His resurrection from the dead proves the acceptance by the Father of this sacrifice, the approval of the Father, the the victory over death. So not only must He die, but He must rise and give life in His resurrection. And so, at the resurrection of Christ, he bursts forth. Death doesn't hold him down anymore. He's crowned victorious in the resurrection. This is the gospel. Christ has to die, be buried, and rise. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15? According to the Scriptures. It has to happen this way. Jesus knows this. He's telling them. He's showing them. Otherwise, there's no salvation. Otherwise, there's no heaven. Otherwise, there's no life without these things. And so he tells them and he shows the disciples 
and He's trying to prepare them. My friends, my disciples, my brothers, my children, prepare your hearts. It's coming. At this point in the context of the Gospel narrative, we're a year away from the cross. And He's just spending all this time. Brothers, I'm telling you, I have to go. I have to be persecuted. I have to die, but I will rise. He tells the disciples to get them ready. Get ready. Prepare your hearts. Know it's coming. But then Peter speaks. Verse 22. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Oh, Peter. Perhaps Peter was a little bit overconfident at that moment. Because after all, Jesus had just praised him in front of all his disciples, all the brothers, even his own brother. Andrew, check this out, right? I mean, you got to feel pretty good about that. Blessed are you, Simon, son of John. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. All right. This is good, right? The Lord just said I'm blessed. No one's ever told me that. The chief priests have never told me I'm blessed. But the Lord has just told me I'm blessed. Oh, this is such a good day. Maybe he's feeling overconfident. Maybe now because he has this relationship it has been confirmed to him, maybe he believes he has the right to counsel the Lord. Oh Lord, you've just told me that it's on all this, this faith and all of this. You're going to build this church and you've told me I'm the rock and we have all these other rocks. And there's, Maybe he's getting excited and thinks he has the right to go and tell him what's on his mind. Or perhaps he was just being foolish. Whatever the reason, we don't really know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But we do see that Peter pulls him aside and if you can fathom this in your mind, begins to rebuke him. Can you imagine? Rebuking the Lord for something that he said. And notice how Peter does it. Look at the words here. I mean, it's almost hard to read, isn't it? Peter tells the Lord of creation... God forbid it, Lord. That's pretty bold and brassy, don't you think? God forbid it, Lord. Probably the most ironic thing he could have said. The reason Jesus was going to the cross was specifically because God had willed it. But Peter says, God forbid that you go to the cross and die. And then he adds this, it shall never happen to you. How's that for declarative statements? Claiming truth and claiming the promises of God, so to speak. Prosperity gospel preachers do this all the time. They say foolish and ignorant things. They take a Bible verse out of context and they say, oh, this is the truth of God's word. Claim it. This shall never happen to you. Now, notice what's going on here, though. Peter is asserting his own will. That's what he's doing. He's asserting his own will. God forbid it, Lord. This will never happen to you. How can Peter say what will or will not happen? I mean, fathom the ignorance of this. Forget telling the Lord this. Can you imagine telling another person this? Oh, I, I know you really well. Oh, that, you'll be fine. That'll never happen to you. That's a recipe for disaster. 
Oh, you'll never get into a car accident. Oh, never going to happen. I mean, it's the most foolish thing, isn't it? We would never even dream of willing something into existence for somebody else, and yet he would do this in front of the Lord? Oh, boy, I, I get nervous. I don't know about you. Oh, Peter, have mercy. But notice here that Matthew records that Peter only began to rebuke the Lord. He only begins. Jesus cuts him off right away. Look at verse 23. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. The nuance here is subtle, actually. There's a lot going on, but there is some subtle nuance here. Peter seems to have pulled Jesus aside, and perhaps he's shoulder to shoulder. Commentators have actually talked about this and had discussions about what's actually going on in the text. It seems as though Peter is sort of pulling aside or leaning into him on one side, but it seems as though in the reply, Jesus is turning and facing him now and squaring off directly. That seems to be what's going on. And as he squares off and looks him right in the eye, that's when he utters the rebuke that would have chilled Peter to the bone. First, he tells them this, get behind me, Satan. Now, he uses the word here that is the same one in the Greek as chapter 4, verse 10, which is what he, the text says he's doing to Satan himself. Remember back in the time of the temptation, he says, get away from me. That's the word here. And then Jesus calls Peter Satan. He calls him that. Now, there's been, again, a lot of chatter about this, what's going on here. I think it's safe for us to say a few things. Number one, Jesus does not believe that Peter is himself Satan. He's not Satan incarnate, okay? Jesus doesn't refer to him that way. The second thing I think it's safe to say is that Jesus doesn't believe that Peter has now been possessed by Satan. Well, how do we know? Well, number one, the text doesn't actually tell us that. Why is that important? Well, because elsewhere, when that does happen, the Bible tells us that happens. For example, when Judas Iscariot is betraying the Lord, the Bible says that he was indwelt by Satan to betray him. So whenever Satan is going to go and do something like this, you think the gospel writers are going to say something. They say nothing about that. The scripture never tells us. So it's safe for us to assume, I believe, that that's not what's going on. He's not being indwelt. He's not the personification of Satan himself. What's more likely is this, that in sinfully opposing the will of God, Peter himself is unwittingly serving the purposes of Satan. He's doing Satan's will. If you remember back to the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, the Lord commands him to flee, which he does. And then Luke, interestingly enough, notes in chapter 4, verse 13, that Satan leaves Jesus until an opportune time. It's curious to me. An opportune time. When is that going to be? Two years later. Now, two years later, Satan and demons, they've been stalking Jesus all this time, trying to find a way, an opportunity to tempt him again and get him off the, the path of fulfilling the mandates of the gospel. And now Satan has found his opportunity through the foolishness and the pridefulness of one of Jesus' own disciples. 
Remember again, Jesus had been offered by Satan a kingdom without a cross, which he rejects. But if you look at here very carefully, Peter is offering him the exact same thing. He's offering a kingdom without a cross. Die? Be persecuted by the chief priests and scribes and Pharisees? God forbid that. That's never going to happen to you. You're the Messiah. I just told you so. Right? But Jesus sees what this is. He sees what this is. And it's my belief here that Jesus rebukes Peter this way for two reasons. I think he, he says this, I believe. There's probably more to this, but from what I can gather. Number one, to rattle Peter's cage and knock him off his square. This, this would have shocked him and rattled him. Whereas 10 minutes before, he's speaking very differently to him. But now he looks him in the eye, his friend for these past couple years, the man he slept next to on a mat while they're traveling around, going and doing ministry together, looks him in the eyes and says, get behind me, Satan. Oh, that would rattle me. Certainly would have rattled, rattled Peter. But I think the second reason he does this this way is to send a message directly to Satan, who was no doubt peering over Peter's shoulder, get out of my way. Get behind me. But there's more to the rebuke here. He says, get behind me, Satan. But then he adds two more things here. And I believe he's sort of switching now and talking again to Peter. I think he's meant, Peter's meant to take the first rebuke, certainly. You're acting like Satan, Peter. Stop. But then he says this, you are a stumbling block to me. You are a stumbling block to me. Now, just before this, Jesus blesses Peter and calls him a Petros, a rock. But he calls him a rock in a good way, doesn't he? It was his confession that was a a model confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus essentially says, Peter, let me just tell you, brother, every believer from this point forward is going to say the exact same thing in their heart when they come to believe. Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Isn't that our confession? That we profess Jesus as Lord? Yes, absolutely. The confession was the rock on which the church is built, but now he's calling him a different kind of rock. Not a rock with which you build, but a rock that you trip over. It's changed now. Scripture warns about stumbling blocks, doesn't it? Things that obstruct our efforts to be faithful in our walk with Christ. Romans 9.33 even speaks of a stumbling block of hard-heartedness that is called the rock of offense. What is so offensive about Peter's statement here? After all, it's only natural that a friend would not want to see his friend suffer and die. I mean, can't we sympathize with Peter a little bit here? I don't want the Lord to go and die. Is it so wrong to think that and believe that? It's only natural, right? But that's exactly his problem. He's thinking naturally, not supernaturally. Jesus gives the reason for the harshness of his rebuke. He says, you're you're a stumbling block. You're a rock of offense, Peter. Why? Because... 
Peter was not setting his mind on God's interests, but on man's interests, on his own interest. He was only focused on what he wanted and wasn't focused on what the Lord had revealed to him. Jesus tells him all these things and essentially what he's doing when he rebukes the Lord is saying, I don't believe you, you're lying. That's not going to happen, even though you're telling me it is. I don't believe you. Shame on you for saying such a thing, Jesus. Peter, you're wrong. You are so wrong. He wanted Jesus to stay. He wanted the comfort and protection of the Lord because he sees the the scribes and the Pharisees and all the opposition. They come to the disciples and it's Jesus who stands in the gap. I have confidence when I'm with you, Lord. Don't leave. He wanted an earthly Messiah. Certainly James and John did. Oh, Lord, send down fire. We're going to fight your battles for you. We're going to be victorious. We're going to reign with you, Lord. What do you mean you're going to go and die? That's not the plan at all. We want to reign with you. We want to march behind you into the city and overthrow the Romans. We want prosperity. We want peace. We want the kingdom now. Maybe he even liked the fact that Jesus had handpicked him. Maybe it made him feel special. I don't want to oversimplify, but don't we think that way in our humanness? Don't all of us just kind of want to feel special? The Lord could have gone to Jerusalem and picked all the Pharisees, but He came to me, a fisherman, and He picked me. What do you mean you're going to go and die? Whatever it was, it was man's interests. It was not God's interest. See, the battle for the Christian life, my friends, consists in learning to set your mind on the things of God and not on the things of the flesh. And let me tell you, this is one of the most difficult things about being a Christian. It really is. In fact, I would contend with you that this is all of the Christian life. The battlefield exists in the confines of your mind, right? People can say whatever they want outside, They can persecute you. They can beat you. They can take your house away. They can do whatever they want. That's external. That's hard. But what's more difficult is the battle that's taking place in your mind and in your heart. That's where the real warfare is. It's not out there. It's inside. That is where it is. Romans chapter 5 says, excuse me, Romans 8, 5, for those, listen to this, for those who are according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind that is set on the flesh is death, but the mind that is set on the Spirit is life and peace because the mind that is set on the flesh, man's interests, is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh, listen carefully, cannot please God. When you set your mind on man's interests, on self-interests, when you, and only you, you are hostile to God and you cannot please Him. 
when you put your mind on your own desires, you're hostile to God. And I'll tell you, we excel at doing this. Believers everywhere, certainly unbelievers, that's a given, but even Christians. Case in point, Peter. Christians struggle with this. We get so focused on what we want. Ministry in the way that we want to do it. Serving in the way that makes us happy. Giving in the way that we're comfortable. Submitting when we want to submit. Valuing what we think is valuable for our benefit. Doing ministry or missions. Whatever it is to make ourselves feel better. Engaging in church life the way that we want to engage. The list is endless. But that is the mark of whether or not you are a healthy church or you are a spiritually weak and immature church is where do you set your mind and your heart? It's all about that. Where, beloved, is your heart? What do you think about? Do you spend your days training yourself, training your mind, training your affections to focus on Christ? Do you? Yes, you have jobs. Yes, we have families. Yes, we have responsibilities. Yes, we have desires. Yes, we have things to do. Of course we do. But in the context of all of that, Where is your heart? Are you setting your mind and your desires on the the things that God desires? Or are you setting them on what you desire? And you might be sitting here thinking, well, is it really that big of a deal if I am not engaged with this in the way that you're telling me, preacher? But what does Jesus say to Peter? Strongest rebuke I can find. Get behind me, Satan. Oh, I would shudder. And I'll tell you, there are moments, confession here, where I know that I'm setting my own interest above the Lord's and I can feel His stinging rebuke. Get behind me, Satan. Oh, Lord, have mercy. Forgive me for setting my own interest above You. For setting my pride in front of yours. Your righteous jealousy for your own glory. Oh Lord, forgive me for acting in vengeance and retaliation when you are the righteous one and I'm the offender. Oh Lord, forgive me for not loving and for being judgmental. Oh Lord, forgive me for not seeing your plan when my plan gets destroyed. Forgive me, oh Lord. I don't want to be called the accuser of the brethren, Satan. And so let this be a warning to us all not to set our will against the Lord, but rather, but rather to focus our minds and our hearts as Colossians chapter 3 says to us. I want to just read this to you as an encouragement, as an exhortation 
to lift your spirits, beloved. Therefore, if you have been raised with Christ, and those who are in Christ have been, right? And that's what he says at the end. Not only am I going to suffer and die, but I'm going to rise. If those who have been raised with Christ keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Then he says in verse 2, set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. I always hear a person who is so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. That is baloney, that is garbage, that is hell. Those who are heavenly minded are so earthly good. That's how Puritans thought. That's how we are supposed to think. That's how Christ thinks. To set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth. To value and prize what Christ values and prizes. To love what he loves and hate what he hates. That's godliness, beloved. That is holiness and righteousness. For you have died with Christ. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your life is not your own. Your life belongs to him and it's, it's hidden. It's captured. It's safe with him. Oh Lord, it's not going the way I want it to go. It's okay. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. Could you not have anywhere else you'd want to be? Then he says, when Christ, who is our life, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Take heart, beloved. Take heart, weary spirit. Take heart, poor doubting Christian. Take heart, bruised reed and smoldering wick. Encourage your heart. Now God is with you. You can set your mind on Him and trust Him. See, Peter's error was that he was trying to stop Jesus from going to the cross. But if Jesus didn't go to the cross, there would be no payment for sin and all of us would be dead. No, Christ had to come and He had to die. He had to give His life as a ransom for sinners. That's how we're able to have our life hidden with Christ and God. That's how we're able to have peace with God. Did we not hear about peace and hope We talk about Christmas. Amen. But what is the point? Is that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That He is our peace. He is our righteousness. He's given up His life for sinners that we might be forgiven and be free. So, beloved, set your mind not on your own interest, not on your own selfishness, not on your own will, not on your own worries and doubts, the things that beleaguer you, the things that worry you. Set your mind on the things above where Christ is. Train yourself, beloved. Discipline yourself for godliness. It is your spiritual service of worship, is it not? Heavenly Father, we thank You. We thank You that You have through our brother Peter and through the Scriptures this morning, ushered this warning and this rebuke, not just to Peter, but to all of us, even to me, O Lord, certainly to me, 
not to set our own will and our own interests on ourself, but to set our interest and our own gaze and our fixation on Your will. Lord, Your will be done. Do we, do we not read this in the Scriptures? In the garden where, Lord, You say to the Father, not My will, but Yours be done. Oh, that we might submit our will to Yours, O oh Lord. Spirit of God, that You might help us and convict us of our sin when we are self-willed, when we're unsubmissive, when we have our own will that hijacks our hearts. Lord, help us to open our hands and open our hearts and open our, our understanding to receive Your will and Your truth. That You might show us Your will in the Scriptures, Lord. And that we might be conformed to it and follow You and chase You and prize You above all other things. Everything else is vanity and chasing after the wind. But with You, O Lord, You are our portion. O Lord, You are the one that our soul loves. You are the chiefest of 10,000. You are our righteousness. And You are our life. Help us, Lord, to live this in earnestness. And we praise You for the truth of the Gospel that all who repent of their sins and trust in Christ will have this life eternal. We praise You. In the name of the Lord. Amen.